As they go, we will affirm our trust in the Word of God. If you will stand with me, and we'll say this together. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. You can be seated. Uh, so this morning, again, I get the, the privilege of preaching this morning again as we continue on our summer series, When the Lord Makes a List. As we just look at, there's lots of lists through Scripture, and we get to look at uh, a few of them, and we'll do that for a couple of more weeks. Today, we get to look at a fantastic list. Not that the other ones aren't great. This one might be better. Uh, what, I, what I mean by that is we get to look at a high point in Scripture. Uh, Out of all the passages uh, in Scripture, out of all the lists that there are, uh, this is one of the most encouraging lists that we can come to as believers. And I want to encourage you and me this morning, let God's Word speak to you. I feel the weight of preaching, of delivering God's word to you. That's, that's a weight that I feel, and it's good and right for me to feel that. But more than that, I feel the power of God's word. My flesh is like grass. My word will fade. But God's word will remain forever. God's word is powerful. God's word is life-giving So let his word speak to you. Let his word transform you. His word lasts forever. So I want to read our passage this morning. It's found in your pew Bible on page 944, uh, coming from Romans chapter 8, a highlight in general, and then the end of Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. Again, that's page 944 in your black pew Bible. Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall shep- separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. 
This is the, this is the highlight. This is the, the, the mountaintop uh, of Romans. So my sermon in a sentence for our incredible passage this morning is this. Jesus guarantees that nothing will separate us from the love of God. Jesus guarantees that nothing will separate us from the love of God. And my outline is this. I have another two-point outline. I know, a good preacher's supposed to have three. I'll get there one day. Uh, two outline is, is first, is a list of questions. And then second is a list of answers. So we get two lists this morning in our series, When the Lord Makes a List. A list of questions and a list of answers. Before we get into our list of questions... I feel compelled to share some of the weaknesses of this sermon as a standalone sermon. I don't have any problem with doing topical sermons uh, where we take, but what I mean by that is where we take a particular passage and we look at it, what does the Lord have from this passage? Uh, oftentimes here at Chatham, we go through a whole book of the Bible, and we preach through it in succession. And then there's other times, like this summer, where we say, we're going to look at a passage here, and we're going to look at a passage here and here, and we're going to see what does God have for us in those. And both are good, and both are needed. So I don't have any problem with that. Um, With this particular passage in this sermon series, which, by the way, I suggested and I picked, so it's not like Sergey gave this one to me, and and, um, so I I did it. I I found it's particularly difficult to do this way. Not that it's difficult to be encouraged from, not that it's difficult to understand, uh, but that it's, it's difficult to get the full picture without the rest of Romans. I mentioned earlier, and, and many commentators have said this, this Romans 8 is like a mountaintop experience, a mountaintop view. If you've ever been at the top of a mountain, you can see for miles, and, and you get this feeling of, of both bigness and smallness of the world around you. I wouldn't say that I've climbed a mountain in the past, but I've done a little bit of hiking. And there is something unique that when you hiked up there, when you stretched over all the rocks and through the trees, that that when you make it to the top, the view is somehow better. It's the same view, but because you got to experience not the whole mountain, but you got to experience the journey in getting there, it makes the view that much better. So that's the, the weakness. This morning, we have not been preaching through and working through the book of Romans together, and that's okay. Um, but I would encourage you, if you haven't read through the book of Romans, if you haven't experienced the walk to the mountaintop, per se, is find a friend, look around, find a friend, say, hey, let's read the book of Romans together. Let's work through it. Let's journey up the path till we get to the mountaintop, and then we'll walk back down afterwards. Um, so that's, that's the weakness of today's sermon. That's really, it's a weakness of any sermon that is standalone. And when you don't get the privilege of digging deep into the context around you, again, it's, it's fine to do. And so I think I want to do that the best. But my encouragement for you is, is read the book of Romans, uh, maybe even after you have heard this sermon, if you haven't before. Uh, so I always feel that. And maybe... This week, in particular, it's because 
I felt the depth of Romans in general. It's fantastic. It's, it's like an exposition of the gospel. Uh, and you could spend weeks and or years studying the book of Romans. Uh, or maybe it's because of the first line in our passage today. Our passage this day says, it starts with, what then shall we say to these things? So a good Bible student would read that and be like, well, what are these things? What are we talking about? Uh, so he's talking about the first part of the letter. He's not even talking about just the specific context right before that, but really everything that has led up to this point. What shall we say to these things, these truths that, that he has written about so far? So I want to give us a lightning-fast ride to the top of the mountain. Uh, he says, what shall we say about these things? So what shall we say about the fact that the righteous shall live by faith? That's how God has called us to live. What shall we say to the fact that all have sinned, all have gone their own way, all have worshipped other gods, all have fallen short of the glory of God? What shall we say? What shall we say to the fact that we are justified by faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? What shall we say that uh, we are set free from the law, yet the law teaches us what is good and right? What shall we say to the fact that we as Christians struggle with sin, yet are set free from it through Jesus? What shall we say to these things? Again, that was the express route to the top. Uh, we barely caught a glimpse of some of the incredible scenery along the way. But what shall we say about these things? Well, Paul gets to this point and he asks questions. So here's my, my first point. We finally got there. Uh, and it's kind of a trick. My first point is not really one point. I'm sorry. It's like five points. I will try to go quick because it's a list of questions, and so each question deserves its kind of its own little sub point. So we're going to go through each question with varying depth and speed. So the first question in our list of questions is this If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, to be clear, this is not to say that no one is against us, that no one is against God's people, that there are no enemies or no forces at play. In fact, theologians have often spoken of the big three that are against the Christian, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Christians have enemies, those that have set themselves against God. In fact, Christians used to be enemies of God. Yet, while we were still enemies, at the right time, Christ died for us. But the world, those who have not yet seen the beauty of God, or those that have seen and rejected the beauty of God, is against the Christian, and is against God, sometimes actively, sometimes passively. So first, the world is against the Christians, sometimes because the gospel is offensive. The gospel, 
The good news that Jesus came to die and save sinners is hard to hear for the proud. It says, you were created in the image of God for his glory, to enjoy the world around you, to flourish in his kingdom, yet you went your own way. You have rebelled against the good king. You have hurt yourself and others. You are sinful, and you have either set yourself up against your creator, or you have ignored him so much that you pretend he doesn't even exist. Because of this, you will go to hell if you don't turn from your sin and submit to God. This is an offensive message for those who don't believe. It says, your God is no God at all, and you are not God of your life. The way that you see the world is incorrect. Your understanding of reality is wrong. This is the grace that we see when we accept this truth and we believe in Jesus. And is it offensive when we don't? Because of this, the world is against us, sometimes actively persecuting, sometimes saying the God that we serve is the true God. And so we will persecute you for it. Other times saying, how dare you claim that my life is wrong? How dare you claim that there is real truth? And that persecution comes in varying levels. But the world is against Christians. Other times, the world is against Christians passively. Just tempting us. Not even, not even meaning to tempt us, maybe, but just by living, just by being uh, broken and living with perverted pleasures. We see, as Christians, we see the wicked prosper. We see them living a carefree or overindulgent life. And we don't always see its consequences. And sometimes our heart says, that looks fun. That looks good. I want that. There's, it's the alluring smell of death that the world tempts us. Christians have enemies. Then there's our flesh, our own sinful desires. Not the temptation that comes from outside, but the temptation that comes from inside, from within. My own pride, my own lust, my own desire for a carefree and overindulgent life. Paul himself says earlier in the previous chapter, this is Romans 7, 21 through 24, he says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of, good, of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then he says this, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? My own flesh wars against me. My own desires are wrong. Our flesh is against us. And the devil is against us. He prowls around like a roaring lion waiting to devour us. He is a tricky and powerful and beautiful liar. 
He works against God and against God's people. Now, I'm not one that looks for every small thing that goes wrong in your life to say it was the devil. I believe God is far too powerful for that to be true. But it is also equally foolish, or more so foolish, to pretend that we don't have an enemy that wants to separate us from God, that that wants to tempt us or trick us or hurt us. Christians, we have enemies. But, but with God, no one can stand against us. They are nothing compared to God. We may be like a little five-year-old who is bullied by a couple of ten-year-olds. Sometimes we might get a few good licks in. Overall, they're pretty strong. But God is like a fully geared-out Navy SEAL. A couple of ten-year-olds are nothing. Right? They can't stand. They can't fight. They can come up and try to kick in the shins all they want. They can bite and they can scratch. A fully trained, fully geared out Navy SEAL will subdue them easily and quickly. With God on our side, our enemies who are real cannot stand against him. God is far more powerful. The world may look tempting, but God created the world. So he reveals reality for what it is. He shows us what good really is, and he transforms the alluring stench of death to really be stinky. Our flesh may have desires that are wrong, but God created us. And God transforms our desires to be what they should be. He has power over us. The devil may be powerful, but next to God, he is nothing. One little world, one little word, will fell him. All God does is speak, and Satan is ended. With God for us, who can be against us? The second question in Romans 8, chapter, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So we may wonder, we may think, well, nothing can stand up against us, and nothing can stand against God, but what about God? Will God change his mind? Will he hold good things from us? Well, God already gave the most important thing that he could give. He gave his own son. He spared no expense on us. Nothing is too costly. He already gave Jesus So he will give us all things. This this verse here, it reminds us of the story in Genesis of Abraham, where Abraham is tested by God to sacrifice Isaac. And he goes through it, and he's ready. At the last moment, God says, stop. Now I see that you have loved me, because you did not hold your son, your only son, whom you love. God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son. He didn't stop at the end. But Jesus was sacrificed so that we could be redeemed, so that we could live. 
God will not change his mind, and he will hold nothing back. He will graciously give us all things. Imagine that you have a, a rich uncle. I don't know why it's always an uncle, but it is. You have some rich uncle, and it is like, like ridiculously rich. So this uncle's like, you know what? I'm going to give you $10 million. Like, oh my goodness, that's incredible. Like, that's, that is life-altering money. Um, $10 million. Imagine that same uncle who is ridiculously wealthy and, and has much more, and, and he's with you, and you're, you, you've parked, and you don't have money to cover the meter. You would ask your rich uncle, and your rich uncle would be like, yes, of course I will cover the parking today. Of course, because it's nothing to me, because I have already given you so much. I've given you something so great, why would I not give you a little? Yeah, don't worry about the check for dinner, I got it. It's easy for me. I've given you so much, why would I not give you little? God has given the greatest thing he can, so he will withhold nothing good from us. Our third question in verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Here we move more to a legal sense. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Well, again, we have an accuser. Satan is the accuser. And he does it with true things. Satan is the father of lies, but he is gifted at taking truth and using it in a way that furthers his agenda and hurts people. Using half-truths against us. Satan will bring accusations. He will bring charges against God's people but they won't stick. They can't stick. There's a song um, Shane and Shane sing, and part of it goes like this. It's about the, the devil and him preaching. It says, I hear him saying, cursed are the ones who can't abide. He's right. Hallelujah. He's right. The devil is preaching the song of the redeemed that I am cursed and gone astray. I cannot gain salvation. Oh, the devil's singing over me an age-old song that I am cursed and gone astray. Singing the first verse so conveniently over me. But he's forgotten the refrain. Jesus saves Jesus saves. Whatever accusation is brought against you cannot and will not stick because it's Jesus who justifies. And he does so with his own blood. No charge can stick because it's already been paid for by his blood. And we are declared innocent of any and every charge that can be brought against us. And this is not a legal loophole. And it's not having a corrupt judge that's just like, you know what, I'm going to let my son off the hook. Instead, it's justice that has been done on the cross. Jesus taking the punishment that you and I deserve. 
and fully experiencing the wrath of God. Who is to condemn? No one. Fourth question, who is condemned? It's a similar question, who will bring a charge, but uh, many commentators take this as, as looking himself at, at Jesus. That Jesus is the one to condemn. He will come back at the end of the age and he will judge the world, the living and the dead. He has the right to condemn, he has the ability to condemn, and he has the wisdom to do it justly. Will Jesus condemn his people? No. Why? Again, the gospel is given. Jesus is the one who died for his people. So Jesus is the one who guarantees that they will not be condemned and die. And more than that, Jesus was raised. He will not only make sure his people don't die, but his life, his new life, his resurrected life, guarantees resurrected life for his people. And then Paul goes even further. He says, Jesus is at the right hand of God, interceding for his people. Interceding for us. There is no one who will condemn God's people because Jesus guarantees it. Now many of us sometimes think, well, maybe God doesn't condemn me. Maybe he will forgive me, but I don't know if I can forgive myself. When we say things like this, really at its base, it's just pride and arrogance. I don't mean that we don't feel that way. I mean that we feel that way wrongly. Who are we to say that the God of the universe is less just than we are? That somehow he can forgive us, but we can't because we have a stronger sense of justice. But even as we experience that in in pride, it's a common experience that we self-condemn. We think I know who I really am. I know what I've really done, and I must be condemned. When we think or feel this way, John reminds us, this is 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. He says, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. This is fantastic. First, God is greater than our hearts. Our hearts can't condemn us because he's the authority over them. He is the authority in our life, not our hearts. Second, God knows everything. God knows the depths of our heart and of our sin that we don't know, that we don't see, and he still loves us. Tim Keller often says it like this. He says, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. And you are more loved than you ever dared hope. God knows everything, and he has loved us. This brings us to our fifth and final question in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Maybe no one can stand against God. Maybe no one can bring a charge against his people. Maybe no one can condemn. But maybe, maybe something can separate us. If the lion can't get the baby elephant in the herd, because the elephant's too, other, other elephants are too powerful, maybe he can separate the baby elephant, and he can get him that way. So finally, and hopefully quickly, we'll get to our, our second list, a list of answers that are really not answers at all, 
um, and the fact that none of them are able to separate. And I guess really they're more of questions. And they're questions to answer our first question of who can separate within our main list of questions for what shall we say to these things. So lots of questions, lots of answers, lots of lists. Um, One of the greatest evidences that Scripture is true is the fact that the Word of God is true to life. By that, I mean that it accurately describes how we experience the world. It doesn't sugarcoat life and pretend that everything is daisies and ice cream. Even though this is a high point in Scripture, we are confronted with real life, real difficulties. In fact, I think that's why it's such a high point in Scripture. Precisely because Christians do have to face things, the things in this list, and the fact that none of them are able to separate us from God's love. Let's look at the first part of the list. This is in verse 35 of what, can, what sh- could separate us. It says, Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? All of these things are real things that Christians throughout history have faced and will face. In fact, in the very next verse, Paul quotes from Psalm 44, that at least is in part is, is wrestling about the hard things that God's people have to endure. Verse 36, it says, As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says these things are happening. You experience these things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. They are all happening. They have all but the sword happened to Paul. He experienced them. Now, I don't want to sugarcoat these things and pretend like, oh, you know, these things are fine. They're not really a big deal. They're not incredibly hard to live with. Or that they don't sometimes make us wonder, have we been separated from the love of God? I think that's why Paul includes these. When you stare down a diagnosis of cancer and you wonder, does God love me? When your family has been broken up by sin, you wonder, does God love me? When you face financial hardships that you don't know how to, how to get out of, does this mean that I've been separated from God's love? Just like people would have thought Jesus hanging on the cross meant that God didn't love him. If anything is evidence that this guy was a false prophet, It must be the cross. No. In fact, as God poured out his wrath on Jesus, he loved him. He loved him for who he was, for his obedience, for his endurance. So too, the hard things in life, they are not evidence that God doesn't love us because nothing can separate you. So why are you going through a hard time? Why are you experiencing hunger or danger? Why sickness? I can't answer that fully. 
I think it's dangerous to to speak of God the things that we don't know. But I, I can say that I know at least in part, and this is true, that it is because God loves you. This is true, and this is hard to wrestle with. And things that, that I have been wrestling with, that, that Beth and I have been wrestling with as we um, experience the new diagnosis of MS. We have to wrestle with. What does this mean? Has God separated his love from us? No. Nothing. Not sickness. Not cancer. Not danger. Not death. Nothing can. In fact, Paul goes on, verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Not only will we make it through the situation God gives us, but we will conquer. Not not only conquer, but we will thrive. This includes things that end in death. Because in the second list, Paul says, Life or death, neither one can separate. So we rightly rejoice at the stories of healing. Absolutely. Amen. God is good to heal. But we can also rightly rejoice with the stories of the believer that ends in death. And some of the the saddest and coolest things that we get to experience as a church here is the funeral of someone who loved the Lord. Because nothing can separate them from the love of God. Death It's better, Paul says. For me to die is gain. Paul ends this passage with a a list of things that can't separate. This is 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else at all in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a list. And I love that just in case Paul didn't include the thing that you're struggling with, the thing that you're wondering about, just in case he didn't include it, he says, nor anything else in all creation. Nothing. So, what shall we say about these things? What will you say? What will I say? I pray that the Holy Spirit takes this passage, and if you are a believer in Christ, gives you assurance and courage and love for God. If you are not a believer, if you're not sure about Jesus, then I pray that this passage opens your eyes, that God's word opens your eyes to see his beauty and his power and his love for his people and hear him call you to himself. He says, repent and believe. Turn from your sin and turn to me and I will save. Jesus guarantees that nothing will separate us from the love of God. As we transition to communion, I want us to internalize this truth. To let the Holy Spirit speak to your soul and to your situation. I don't know it, but God does. 
Remember, as you take the bread and as you drink the cup, that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, that no one can stand against you. Because of Jesus, God will graciously give us all things. Because of Jesus, no one can bring a charge against you. Because of Jesus, no one can condemn you. And because of Jesus, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Here at Chatham, we practice open communion, which means if you are a believer in Christ, if you have placed your trust trust in him, please come and take. We come forward and you can take here or here, or if you're in the balconies, there's communion set up for you. If you're not able to get up, um, you can raise your hand and an elder will bring communion to you so you can participate. Also, as you hopefully let God's word speak to you, maybe you want to pray with somebody. Maybe pray with somebody who's right next to you or uh, come up here and pray with the Lucans. They're happy and ready to pray with you. Uh, Especially if you are wondering about placing your trust in Jesus and what that looks like. Come talk to the Lucans. Um, So let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. You are good. You are powerful. You have made everything that has been made. And because of it, you have authority over everything that has been made. So Lord, we praise you that no one can stand against us. Not because of our own strength, because of your overwhelming power. We praise you that we are not condemned Not because we don't sin, but because our sin is forgiven by your death on the cross. Jesus, we praise you that we can expect all things because you were given as a sacrifice. Jesus, we praise you that nothing can separate us. Lord, we confess that we we think some things might be evidence that you don't love us. Remind us of your love. Spirit, be with us as we experience, as we go through dangers and trials and nakedness and sword. Be with us. Lord, we love you. The Lord Jesus... On the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats or drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let's take together.